Welcome to the Quest Express, your passport to immersive travel experiences and cozy conversations. For curious explorers who understand the art of slow travel, we're your go-to podcast. Every few weeks, we touch the heartbeat of a new city where we chat with artists, innovators, historians, and entrepreneurs who make each city come alive. The Quest Express is not just a podcast. It's your ultimate slow travel companion. It's an invitation to begin your own quest. The Franks were already in, in northern Italy. They had replaced the Lombards. Mm. And the Franks didn't have that little strip of land and water, which is the Venetian Lagoon. So Pippin, uh, Charlemagne's son, thought it wanted to have it too. Couldn't let them be independent. But the island was uh, close to the gap between one of the three gaps, between the Adriatic Sea and the lagoon. And that is where the Frank fleet came in from. But because they didn't know how to navigate the lagoon, their ships ran aground and the Venetians had a field day in attacking them, burning them and slaughtering them. It was in their ear that the population decided to move the capital from there at the bottom of the Lido, where there was an island which is no more, but uh, it's called Malamocco, to where Venice is now, which was called differently in those days, was called Rivus Altus. Now it's a Real where the Rialto Bridge is. Okay. Because that place in the middle of the lagoon was considered to be a safer place. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it proved to be the case. Big for a thousand years until Napoleon, no one has ever managed to attack Venice and get to <laughs> to yeah. Venice via water. So it it was a smart move, saved the day for the Venetians. From then on, Venice really took off. What do you think were some of the other defining moments for Venice from the time where we just left off for that victory and today? There was an important date at the end of the first millennium when uh, the Venetians who were, in a way, they had been under the influence of the Byzantine Empire. It was mm -hmm. the last remaining part of Italy under the sphere of influence of the Byzantine, but gradually mm -hmm. they became ever more independent. And uh, at the end of the first millennium, the Venetian turned up in Constantinople, and for the first time, they were called foreigners. So, in the, an official document that uh, gave privileges and tax exemptions to Venetian merchants, mm -hmm. they were not anymore subjects of the Eastern Roman Empire or Byzantine Empire. Became they were called foreigners, so they were truly sort of independent. Another defining moment was obviously later on, when the Byzantine Empire collapsed in 1453 and Turks, or the Ottomans, took over Constantinople. So that was a crucial time for Venice because after dominating the sea for hundreds of years, now there was a hostile superpower in the eastern Mediterranean. And 
eventually that eroded most of the dominions that Venice had in the Mediterranean. All the Greek islands were lost. Cyprus was lost to, mm. to the Ottomans, Crete, mm. and so on, and including places on mainland Greece. So that was another defining moment for Venetian for the Venetian history. And uh, another one which happened not long after that was at the end of the 15th century, the discovery of America in 1492. That opened up a completely new world there. So, But for the Venetians, it was not so much probably at that time the discovery of America, but the fact that Vasco da Gama just shortly after Columbus discovered America, circumnavigated Africa and found the way to get to India, Indonesia and Malaysia and all those countries by passing the Middle Eastern traders that brought spices and all the rest of expensive goods from the Far East to the Mediterranean. And that was another blow to the Venetian trade relationships and trade routes because obviously the Portuguese opened up these new routes took over basically from the Venetians in the trade let's say of pepper so buying pepper in Lisbon around 1500 was far cheaper than mm. buying it in Venice because the Venetians were getting it through Egypt and the Middle East mm. where it was heavily taxed so that was a big blow so that obviously changed And that also was the time, the first 10 years of of the 1500s, was the time Venice um, became under attack from a coalition of other Italian states, as well as the German Empire and the French Kingdom. The Italian states were afraid that Venice would take over them. Wasn't that their fear, though, that they were planning on taking over Venice? Venice was never planning on taking over them. Do you think that was ever the purpose? In in other words, was that an unfounded, irrational fear? Venice was expanding territorially, yes, that's true. But probably, I don't think they had the ambition, probably even the military power, to take over all the other Italian states at the time. But they definitely had ambition. They had wanted to take over Milan, for instance. Plus, they have disputes, uh, territorial disputes with the papacy. So there were definitely grudges around okay. other Italian countries. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Venice managed to escape. It lost all the dominion, almost all the dominions in northern Italy at the time by 1509, thanks to the League of Cambrai. But because then they made a separate deal with the Pope, the Pope got out of the League, so there were other power struggles in other countries. So Venice was spared and saved, so it was not attacked. And so over the next few years, he regained the land that most of the land that he had lost. So that was a crucial time that probably changed the politics in Venice. And there was a book that I read that talked specifically about that. Venetian policy changed from... Uh, trying to expand territories into trying to make Venice more beautiful. So instead, mm. of, instead of investing into weapons, investing into gold. 
So arts yeah. and uh, the, and oh. that started the renovation of Saint Mark's Square, for instance. The the renovation of Saint Mark's Square also took place from 1512 throughout the rest of the century. Gradually, the Procuratia, which is uh, the building on the north side of the square, was built between 1512 and 1530-ish, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then the other side was built around the 1580s. A new church was built, rebuilt by Sansovino, who was one of the leading architects of that century, at the far end of the square, opposite the basilica. So the look of the of the square was completely changed and mm-hmm. was nicknamed the Salon of Venice <laughs> after that because it was what you see now. So I think if I had a choice to live in Venice during a certain time, it would probably be in the mid-16th century. Was it relatively peaceful and there was wealth? Yeah. The political power of Venice probably had peaked around 1500, and then from then on until its demise gradually sort of was gradual sort of uh, decline. But in the 16th century, it was still an extremely wealthy city. The population, I mean, I'm talking about the elite class, the, the patricians had shifted their interest from uh, trade to farming. So quite hmm. a lot of them had bought land on the mainland in the Veneto. Okay. Build, they start building houses there. You may know Palladio was, again, one of the most famous architects of the 16th century who built a lot of villas in the Veneto for the Venetian patricians. So these villas normally had lands, cultivated lands attached to it. So the interest of the patrician elite sort of shifted less trade. It was more complicated to trade with the East mm-hmm. uh, because of the Ottoman Empire, plus the opening of, uh, as I said, trade routes from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean by passing in the entire Mediterranean. America was meant that other countries found other trading routes across the Atlantic. So that shift meant that also the Venetians changed and they had to adapt to the new circumstances and that gradually, eventually led to, plus constant uh, wars with, with the Turks, lasted throughout the 16th and 17th century until the beginning of the 18th century, until obviously the end by Napoleon, the final act of the Venetian Republic. What a sweetheart that guy, huh, Napoleon? (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask you, before we move on to Marco Polo, I wanted to ask, I'm not an expert in architecture, but I think the architectural influences of Venice is one of the most notable things. The shape of the windows. What are the architectural influences in Venice, and where did they come from? The... The influence of the Venetian architecture is definitely Middle Eastern. This probably stemmed from the fact that the Crusades took place around the 12th and 13th centuries. So a lot of people did go to to fight there at the time. And uh, there was the famous Fourth Crusade of 1204, in which the Crusaders made an agreement with Venice so that Venice would supply the ships because they didn't have enough ships to go there in mm-hmm. Venice. But eventually it turned out they didn't have the money to pay for the ships. 
So the Venetians decided, okay, well, basically, let's do a, a deal here. <laughs> you help us and we help you. Yeah. And so the Venetians basically diverted the fleet that was supposedly going to the toward Jerusalem, diverted to Constantinople, and then made it very, very brief here. Basically, then it turned out that they sacked the city, looted the city. So quite a lot of material, talking about columns, uh, marble slabs, mm. uh, capitals, etc., and uh, so many other things, including the four famous horses that are on the front of the basilica mm-hmm. were looted at the time and taken back to Venice. So obviously people who came back from the Middle East took back also ideas and architecturally the the sort of ogive art that you see in so many old Venetian palaces came from there. They also came subsequently from Obviously, some trade contact that the Venetians had also because in those days, those there was still Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine was a Christian empire. So even though there were Muslims around in some parts of uh, the Middle East, uh, the influence also came from other parts, not just from Constantinople. There are things... Well, I just recently read a book in my research about architectural influence on Venice from mm. the Middle East by Deborah Howard. Although quite a lot of influence comes from Syria and Egypt, because Marco Polo didn't go to Egypt and bypassed Syria, it was the influence from those cities, you can see, were not something that were relevant for my studies following the Marco Polo's tracks. But nevertheless, the influence is there in many details, right. uh, including, for instance, the crenellations of the Ducal Palace, for instance, can be seen in one of the buildings in Cairo, I think it's in Moscow or, or in Madrasa, no, I can't remember. Why did you choose to write a book about Marco Polo rather than Casanova? Next year is Marco Polo's 700th mm. anniversary since his death in 1324. That was like a catalyst yeah. that made me decide last year when I started writing this book that that was my aim. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And, and that's why I have to press on yes, <laughs> yes, writing yes. because yeah. time is ticking and uh, right. I'm already writing about China at the moment, but quite a long way to go. So there is a tremendous myth around Marco Polo, just as there is around Casanova. So what do you think are some of the misunderstandings about Marco Polo and what have you disputed based on what you hear people say? Like, What has surprised you in your research about Marco Polo, if anything? One of the things that uh, I learned about Marco Polo is that everybody seems to know his name, but hardly anybody has read his book. Tune in Saturday to find out what you don't know about Marco Polo, the Khan Dynasty, and Marco's forthcoming book.